Tour de France is only three weeks away. And if you want to follow along with this year's race, we have you covered. Our annual Velo News Tour de France guide is out. It is on newsstands now. You can pick up a copy at Whole Foods, Barnes & Noble, a bookstore in your neighborhood. They will have it. Bright yellow cover. Great photo of Igan Bernal on the cover. Check it out now. We have in-depth analysis of all 21 stages, plus some opinions from Jens Voigt on each stage. We also have a great look at all 22 teams in the race, as well as the top 10 contenders, plus some great feature stories that talk about history, the women's race, and some analysis of the heavyweight battle between Yumbo Visma and Team Ineos. So check it out on newsstands now, or if you want to order it from the safety of your own home, go to velopress.com and you can order your 2020 Velo News Tour de France guide now. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from my birthday. Uh, it is a sunny Tuesday here outside Boulder, Colorado. It is my birthday. I am 900 years old today. Just kidding. I'm a little younger than that. But some days, I got to admit, I don't know if it's uh, pandemic age or just like dad age, but I'm feeling a little creaky this week. Um, anyway, another trip around the sun and another podcast for you all. Uh, great show coming up uh, this week. I have not so much an interview. I would say this is more of a conversation with Jason Gay, Wall Street Journal columnist extraordinaire. You have likely read Jason's work. He writes about all manners of sports, but he is a not-so-secret bike geek. He and I used to ride together when I lived in New York City, and he has some great access and some great takes on what is going on in the U.S. bike scene with the surge in bicycle sales and how we can capitalize on that as a community. Uh, we talk about the Tour de France. We get into it all. I really appreciate Jason's insights. So uh, we got Jason coming up. And then after that, I have an interview with Matteo Jorgensen, who just finished 17th place at Milan San Remo, finished in the main group in his just his second World Tour race. Matteo, young American, made his debut in the World Tour earlier this year with Team Movistar. First time an American has been on the Movistar team since Andy Hampton back in the 90s. And Matteo has a really interesting backstory of how he got to the World Tour, committing himself to moving to France, to racing with French teams, to bidding the U.S. domestic scene adieu as he uh, went over to Europe and, and made it to the World Tour the hard way. So we talk all about Milan San Remo and his path to the World Tour. Hey, before we get to Jason, again, thank you to everyone who has signed up for our Active Pass membership um subscriptions continue to roll in continue to get questions every day about active pass i gotta say some of the content we've had on active pass in the last month has been great uh andrew hood just published this piece on why the battle the rivalry between tom bonin and fabian cancellar is actually the best rivalry in pro cycling of the last 20 years. It's right up there with Eddie Merckx versus Roger Devlamic, right up there with Coppy versus Bartoli, that this is the rivalry that uh, 100 years from now, cycling historians will be reading about on their futuristic devices um, of, uh, from this era. You know, Bonin versus Cancellara, why it was so special, what the two guys thought of each other, and just why this rivalry really elevated the classics and is going to stand the test of time. Uh, we have a great excerpt from Peter Sagan's book 
about racing world championships and falling ill afterwards. Um, and then we have Andy's great analysis of Remco Evenepoel, 20-year-old who has already won a ton of races, most re- recently won uh, the Tour of Poland. And uh, Andy goes, goes behind the scenes and explains why Remco's rapid rise at just age 20 is so unprecedented and just a, such a cool story to follow. And as always, with the Active Pass membership, uh, 99 bucks, you get Royal Massive Elephant Rock Mass Participant Event. You get entry into that. You get a year of coaching with today's plan, thousands of specific workouts to help you train, structure your workouts, get strong, drop your buddies on the group ride or on the Zwift ride, virtual group rides, of course. Uh, VeloNews print subscription, two VeloPress books, and great deals with some of our partners like Scratch Labs, Jordana, a couple other partners. Um, it's a great membership. I uh, continue to be impressed by um, the membership itself. And yeah, thanks again to all the people who have been reaching out with questions and comments and signing up for it and reading our uh, content. It, it means a lot. Okay, again, great podcast coming up this week. Enough of me. Let's get to Jason Gay. Then we will hear from Matteo Jorgensen. <laughs> Uh, my guest on the podcast this week is Jason Gay. Jason is a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal. He spends his day writing about all of the goings-on in mainstream sports. But Jason, like all of us, has a bike fix. He is a lover of cycling, of pro-cycling, watching the Tour de France, of riding his own bike around Brooklyn and the greater New York City area. And Jason has some hot takes that he needs to get off his chest. <laughs> about what's going on in the world of bikes and uh he's gonna fill us in on what his own biking life has been like over these last few months jason thanks for coming on the podcast first of all how low do you have to get on the list before it gets to me i imagine like at least like 40 people must have said no before you come to me yeah hoodie had a root canal james start i think he was stuck in traffic um shoot yeah all these riders the other two busy racing but you know hey womp womp no, Jason. I appreciate, I appreciate the call up. I appreciate the call up. Listen, like I have not uh, uh, had many opportunities to chit chat cycling with a fellow cycling lunatic because you know the coffee shop days are a little limited. You know, you don't have those uh, uh, indoor coffee stops like the old days. At least if you do, them, you got to do them socially distant, mask on. You know, yeah, following all the protocols. And it's hard to have your usual like group ride chat with someone when you're wearing a thick mask and all of your riding. Chit chat just sounds like. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Let, let me ask you about this, okay? Because, so what is the group ride? I've done zero group riding. I've jumped on a wheel or two here and there, but I've not done a group, a, a proper group ride since this all began. What's your status? And what's the status? Of, what's the situation where you are? My personal status: I have not done a single group ride either. I've ridden with people in my quarantine, aka some coworkers here and there. Um, okay. I know that from looking at Strava, like the nightly group ride or twice a week group ride here in Boulder is still going on. There's people who are riding. Ah, Strava never lies. I know. Okay. I've definitely seen a lot of winching on social media about like, ah, you know, you did a group ride, you're killing grandma. And so I think that, it, you know, it's like all things with this crazy, crazy COVID thing. It's like region to region is different. Person to person is different. We've heard reports from uh, this Dr. Michael Rashan who is USA Cycling's bike doctor who has written the COVID rules, basically saying, hey, you know, it's outside, keep the group small. You know, you should be worried about 
the coffee stops, about the times when you are stopped, but when you are rolling, like you're, you know, you're pretty, pretty safe. But then you get conflicting information. I mean, it's like everything in 2020, right? It's like for every piece of information, then there's like a, a conflicting. Yes, right. Of course, of course. And, you know, cyclists are nothing if not um, full of information and self-confidence about sharing it. So it is a particularly hazard environment, hazardous environment for that kind of thing. I mean, I should be clear that my group rides, not like people are inviting me out to group rides. I'm not an especially accomplished cyclist. You know, there were times where I would see you up ahead on the road on Riverside Drive, you know, heading up to the GW3 when you were in your New York City days. I'd see that Bellevue's kit that would just sort of like fade, 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 fade into the distance as you just, you know, rumbled away at 700 watts. Um, I think one time you were like trying to ride with me and I was blasting music because I was all stressed out from a tough day of work. And then you emailed me like, hey, Fred, turn down the Metallica. I was trying to ride with you. And I was like, oh, man, bummer. <laughs> I was just all well, stressed out. That sounds really like, – I mean, like, I, I can't lie. Like, I am a, 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 a recidivist, unabashed wheel sucker. I will jump on anybody's wheel, you know, you know, with a certain degree of, like, understanding and permission. But, like, I have not done any of that. Like, and this is the most, like, alone riding I've done. I just – you know, I love that group. I love having those same old conversations. I love like, you know, people telling me my suit is too high. You know, I love all of that shit. So like to not to be denied it is a bummer, but it has made me enjoy something that I didn't enjoy as much. You know, and now I don't think twice about the idea of going out for myself and riding. Um and I should say that like, you know, still quite slow, still overweight, still not where I want to be. But I have ridden more the last, you know, five months than I rode, you know, cumulatively probably in the last five years. And certainly the most mileage of the spring in a decade since before I got married and had kids and they ruined my life. I mean, it's it's become my outlet, my sanctuary, my therapy, all those things that everybody else says. I'm saying them too. It's really been the best. I mean, I, 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 I look forward to it. I'm with you. I I miss cycling as a social activity. You know, the shutdown has corresponded with me having a child as well. So the first year of my child's life, which is totally thrown off, totally yeah, totally thrown off my actual riding schedule. So like coordinating things like group rides, or riding with other people, has been kind of thrown out the window. So it's it's been yeah. kind of a double whammy. So yeah, I've gotten yeah. used to the like you know, going on solo rides and exploring new rides in my neighborhood. And I got to admit, like, I've, I I have become like an audiobook podcast ride guy, which I know is uncouth in today's um, cycling community where, you know, we should be very conscious about what's going on with cars and, and I get it and, and I feel bad about it every time. And then I plug in some. How do we feel about one, one, one AirPod? And how do we feel about that? Ooh, one that AirPod. You know, one earbud. I like, so if you're listening to just audiobooks or podcasts, I'm just saying, like it's a, you don't need to hear a podcast in stereo. I mean, this one you do, of course, <laughs> to hear your sultry voice. But uh, I, I think you can go with one in your right ear, so you know, you, in theory, you hear that in, uh, approaching traffic with your left ear. I like it. it's kind of oh, hipster. Thing. Very dubious. It's kind of hipster. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of. Uh, Two years ago, and Chris Case raced Dirty Kanza, and he only put one arrow bar on. And he was like, hey, I'm going to get the performance benefit of an arrow bar, but I'm going to straddle the line so all the purists won't call me a such and such because I'm using arrow bars <laughs> at the gravel race. I like it. The one earbud. 
<laughs> a, a very long time ago, somebody who I, you know, learned a lot about cycling from told me that, like, the process of becoming a cyclist is increasingly giving less of a shit about stuff. That you, like, start and you're obsessive about equipment, you're obsessive about your look, you're obsessive about, you know, what places you're going, who you're riding with. And as time goes on, you have the experience that you realize that all that accoutrement, it doesn't really matter. What matters is actually turning pedals and being outside and feeling the pressure and all that stuff. And like, yeah, so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm reaching that place, hopefully, at that sort of zen level so here that's a good segue into a line of questioning that i have for you jason which is that you know we keep hearing these storylines coming out of the bike industry of more bikes being sold during the covid shutdown people are at home they're bored they want to get fit they're buying bicycles you have these photos from like walmart and target of the bike racks totally empty bikes just (laughs) flying off the shelves there's all these hypothesizing of new people coming into the sport. So, yeah. and and then the question is like, well, how is we how do we have a, as a cycling community these people who can be a little uptight and have our very distinct, you know, opinions on sock height and clothes to wear and gear to buy? Like, how do we bring in these throngs of new people coming into our sport and not turn them away? Like, what are the etiquette rules that you would like to see thrown out the window or at the very least relaxed over the next few months so that the wave of newbie <laughs> cyclists coming in aren't just going to be like, wow, these people are a bunch of judgmental jerks. I don't want anything to do with this sport. Well, look, Fred, we're all friends. We're all friends, right? Unless you are lining up at Milan San Remo, you are a friend, effectively. You are somebody who is maybe passionate and dedicated and devoting, you know, precious uh, hours of your life to this, but you're not the elite. And so you're not supposed to be some sort of like guard keeper of a gate here. You're supposed to be bringing people into the sport because you were once one of them. And even every pro was once one of those. Pro. So I, I, I cannot take any of that kind of stuff. And I try to never project that kind of thing, um, you know, in the right light, in the right gear with the right sunglasses on the outside of my helmet straps, I might look like I know what I'm doing, but deep down I really don't. So I think this is nothing but positive news, what we're seeing in cycling with regard to the enormous uh, growth of interest and the bike stuff is real. I mean, the data supports that there is, in fact, a financial bike boom happening in terms you, know, you can't get them. I mean, you can go on the internet and try to buy yourself a kid's bike right now or get yourself a nice, you know, there's a lot, a lot of, uh, 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 you know, it's quite hard to get the stuff. I think, you know, and I think that's an indicator. But I love just sort of the anecdotal evidence and just going out and seeing people on the road. And one of the happiest things that I've seen a lot of in the last, you know, four to five months are full families, just the whole like gang out there for a ride, you know, at various levels. And you know, maybe somebody's in training wheels or a couple kids are in training wheels and they're riding a what they call the balance bike. I mean, that's just the best. And it's a funny thing because as at least, you know, I'm going to speak regionally here because I've been in New York state and New York city and around sort of that area. Um, you know, things have started to trickle back to life. I mean, there are elements of, you know, every day, you know, restaurant restaurants and you know, stores are open, you know, and there's, there's, there's regular things are returning. And with that traffic has returned, you think there'd be this sort of parallel track of like biking, Shrinking. That hasn't happened as far as I can tell. Now, listen, we're about to get cold weather rolling in this part of the country and see how many of these people stick with it in 
the winter months uh, or hang on to the spring and want to do it again in the spring. But I just, it's nothing but positive. And this is what's going to save the sport. There's no, there's no like individual innovation to like bike racing as a sport. It's not going to be some sort of whirly gig or technological advancement. It's going to be participation mass and scale and that kind of thing. More people who are on bikes, the greater proportion of them are going to become you know, passionate about it. And if they're passionate about it individually, they can be passionate about the sport. Or even if they don't care about the sport, they're more interested in individualistic things. I think that's all okay too. I think that one thing that has, everyone's had an opportunity to do, and this is, you know, even for the top, top professionals in the world is sort of think about, well, what is cycling now? You know, what is it? What is the, what is this sport? And it's not this very narrow definition of like 200 guys squished into a peloton going up a mountain. There's many, many different ways to do it. Two things um, that come to mind off of uh, your comments right there, both of which harken back to New York City. The first is, do you remember after Hurricane Sandy when um, all of the subways were shut down, you know, the city was brought to a grinding halt. I was living in Brooklyn at that time. And I remember all of a sudden, like, cyclists from out of the woodwork, you know, everyone was commuting into Manhattan on bikes and like the Manhattan Bridge and the Williamsburg Bridge were just packed with people on these old rusty mountain bikes with rusted over chains and they were like falling off their bikes and not knowing what to do. Every bike rack was filled. And I remember having a thought at that time of like, wow, look at all, you know, I hope, I hope cycling or bike commuting in the city can, you know, kind of keep this momentum going. And it didn't really, you know, it petered out after a while. Um, but maybe with, um, you know, this coronavirus lasting much longer and probably companies rethinking what it means to have an office and the need for offices, you know, cycling can become more of a, you know, of a transportation tool. And some of these people who are doing it will get the recreation bug and like progress from there. Right. And, and there's sort of a third rail sense. I mean, what you're describing with regard to the Hurricane Sandy situation, and also there was a, you know, I think there was a transit strike, I don't know, obviously, seven or eight years ago in New York City, where that also forced people out onto the streets on their bicycles, although it was about two degrees out, so it was really a big ask. But I think the other part of this is that, you know, okay, there's X amount of people who want to go from point A to point B, and there's people who are pure competitors. But then there's this whole giant middle of people who are finding you know, personal growth, fitness, therapy, and cycling. And I think that given the obvious stresses of the moment, and this is a, you know, a situation that has put enormous sort of psychological stress on everybody. It doesn't matter who you are or what kind of walk of life. Some people have more stress than others, but like everybody does need outlets and there are no better outlets than ones that are, you know, physically and mentally beneficial. And cycling gives you all that. I always say it's like, as a therapy tool, it works 100% of the time. It just does. Um, you know, it's not to say you don't have bad bike rides and frustrating bike rides, and sometimes you get cold rain and the wind in your face, but, like, it just kind of does the trick for me almost always. And I just see this as being one of those scenarios where you're getting this commingling of people getting the equipment, having access to it. The roads are a bit safer, um, and in some cases considerably safer. And then on top of it, you're realizing the sort of, you know, mind-body connection of what this sport is and the sort of state it can put you in. And that's just a, this amazing formula for a bike boom. And that's exactly what we're seeing, not just in the United States, but, you know, throughout the world. So the second uh, point that came out of that was that uh, a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, I had 
the major Taylor Iron Riders board members on the mm. podcast, and I've been following up with them and doing some more pieces for the upcoming magazine mm. about how that club functions. You know, at first mm. I was really interested in them because it was like, hey, you guys succeed in getting black, Asian, minority, Latino riders on bikes. Like, how do you do that? This white sport, and there's this club in New York City that like is so successful, but. In analyzing their sort of informal playbook for that, it's like, wow, that's just applicable for getting new cyclists into the sport to try and be competitive, which is what they do is they go on their rides. They see someone who's out riding by themselves. They have a person like ride up next to that person, have them take mm-hmm. their earbuds out, start talking to them. Hey, how long have mm-hmm. you been cycling? What you been doing? Oh, yeah. Here's our yeah. club. Would you want to join our club? Here's when our club meets. Here, let, let me get your email. Let me get your number. Cool. Have a great rest of your ride. They follow up, invite them on a ride. Uh, when the person shows up on the ride, they take them on a route. They assign someone on the club to ride with that person and like yeah. make sure that their bike is in working order. If the person gets dropped on 9W, make sure, you know, escort them all the way home. Talk to them out of yeah. club. I mean, it's like the sales pitch that goes on throughout the length of the ride. And then... Yeah. Follow up a few days later. Hey, did you have a good time? Would you want to come back? Come join the club. Doesn't always work, but it's this very sort of social. It's not just like, hey, we're doing a ride. Come on out. And then the person shows up and you go ride. It's like they are greeted. It's like coming into a nice restaurant. There's like a maitre d' who like it greets you, tells you what you're going to experience on the ride, guides you (laughs) through the ride. If you get dropped, takes you home. And then that starts this process of like, gradually working them into like getting dropped and getting their butt kicked on the ride. And then hopefully that carrot sort of progresses them into a competitive or a person who likes the sort of suffering aspect of cycling. In all my years talking to amateur clubs and group rides and whatever, I had never come across something so scientific that was specifically geared at like newbie on road bike wearing high tops like here is our point by point process to get you to like potentially do a bike race. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's like incredibly awesome, and, and I can't think of a better formula to get people engaged in cycling or any kind of activity, candidly. And like that is, you know, you mentioned Major D. It's like more like a mentoring kind of yep. environment. And Major Taylor, I should say, is a huge force in New York City and has been for decades. And like I've had many, many Major Taylor um, riders ride away from me. <laughs> very fast team, very capable. Um, but and of course, Major Taylor, you know, is somebody who, in person, was you know, a legend of uh, Madison Square Garden and uh, racing in the city. And uh, yeah, I mean, what you're describing in terms of what they're talking about and bringing people into the sport is exactly what you want. You want that sort of um, friendly approach. You don't want that kind of intimidating culture. I don't know, Fred. I may be wrong to read this this way, but I feel like some of that bullshit is kind of like dying down. I think as cycling has become a sort of less like, you know, like road racing seems to have plateaued or waned and like people are doing web resting and they're doing adventure riding and they're going off road and they're gravel and it's more participatory. Like, it feels like there's less of that shenanigan nonsense, but I don't know. You're out in Colorado, you tell me. Well, it's so regional. And I mean, you know, out here in Colorado, everyone is aspiring to be some type of pro cyclist. Well, what I should, there's the caveat. 15 years ago, everyone out here was an aspiring pro cyclist. Now everyone is an aspiring, like, Instagram influencer who has, like, <laughs> they have, like, a, a bag on their handlebars and they have a fancy camera yeah. and they ride up into the mountains and snap lots of photos of themselves and post it to Instagram and maybe get some brands involved and do a gravel race every now and again. It's totally, it's totally changed. 
but I want to talk about that for yeah. a second because I, I, I because I, first of all, I never thought I was going to be the person who was going to be Googling handlebar bags, yeah. but here I am. I'm doing it too. But I've noticed anecdotally more people are waving on the road. Like good. just like I just like the wave, like the people who stiff you on the wave. I, I don't get that happening too much. And especially those early months of March and April, May, when people were really getting out from this pandemic, waving felt like it was like 99% where I was riding. And that was really nice thing to see. But the influencer thing, it is true what you described. But I also like, I have to say with admiration of all the people that I do follow, the cyclists who have these sponsors and these sponsor obligations, it's been amazing to see them sort of sweat through this year because, you know, in lack, lacking, you know, the professional engagements and obligate being able to sort of, you know, go race Kansas or, you know, whatever they were going to do, they got to kind of like make it up as they go along. And they've done impressive jobs. I, I have to say, like, some of the more enjoyable accounts that I follow online are, are cyclists because they're creative and they tend to be funny. And um, I also think that they don't like the good ones don't really beat you over the head with the product drops. Like, you know, like that, you know, I can get tired of pretty quickly. But, you know, the ones who sort of like make the product kind of like a side part of whatever story they're trying to tell. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, I find it, it, we talk about this all the time where I work at the Wall Street Journal with sports, but like, you would have thought that a five month period where by and large no sports existed, that we would all be completely screwed and there'd be nothing to talk about and we'd be all repeating ourselves within weeks. And this has been nothing less than the sort of most dynamic period of my sports writing career because so many interesting things are happening, so revolutionary. The cycling is no different. I mean, you probably assume once you saw the season just vaporize, like, what are we going to do? But the debates and the arguments and the, you know, the, 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 all the sort of considerations around the sort of, you know, holistic aspects of the sport are fascinating and probably more important than any of them. I mean, you and I have had this conversation, but I mean, you can cut this out if I'm saying anything yeah. that's a, a privilege, but like, I think you have relayed to me that the coverage that you do of adventure riding is in many cases as popular or many factors times more popular than, you know, ordinary race coverage. That's what we're really connecting with. Yeah, last year when we had this conversation, it was all about dirty Kansas and gravel. And it was like, holy cow, the interest in these gravel races and dirty Kansas is right up there or even surpassing the Tour de France. So this year, gravel, you know, is slated to have this huge boom all these elite athletes with individual sponsorships bucking the usual business model of cycling, the, the team-based business model. And then, like you said, boom, coronavirus comes and wipes out all the gravel races so that they're all having to, you know, do weekly Zwift rides and personal challenges and Pete Stetna doing his funnest known time thing and people Everesting, which kudos, kudos to those athletes for being creative and like coming up with new ways. I did a story a couple of weeks ago. Where I talked to some of them, and for some of them, it was just like, "Hey, I want to make my sponsors happy." Others were like, "My sponsors came to me and were like, hey, we need to get some media impressions. Yeah, please, I bet. please be creative. Like, please do something. We were banking on you, you know, finishing yeah. top ten at Dirty Cans and us getting all these media impressions. So, do a solo ride. Do a uh, do whatever you can. <laughs> and, um, but this year, yeah, like." You know, the Zwift thing was interesting because a year ago I did a story about Zwift and how they had these pro aspirations. We want to be in the Olympics. We want to be a pro sport. And I was like, you guys are smoking dope. That's never going to happen. Or it's just going to take a really long time. And then sure enough, like 
tour, Zwift Tour de France, you know, World Tour teams doing Zwift racing. Like, I'm sure they have advanced their goals by like five or 10 years in the last six months. Um, the yeah. one I couldn't predict was the Everesting. And yeah, like the big go ride your bike, you know, long miles, you know, kill kill yourself on like a 200, 300 kilometer ride. Because yeah, like you have these Everesting stories. People are so interested in them because it combines a lot of things that like traditional race fans are already kind of interested in, which is like, there's a time. So there's like the, the going up, the, there's like a result, you know, data, time. Yeah. there's data, right. um, there's gear because some of these right. Everesting people are getting real crazy with gear setups. And there was some Irish guy who like sawed his handlebars off and like, I don't know, drilled holes in his bike, made it the lightest bike ever. And then there's also like the pitch of the road. So it's like, what is the optimal, you know, Everesting road? It has to be steep and straight because every time you turn, you're losing speed. And, you know, the, the, Jason, the thought of going up and down one straight, steep piece of road as fast as you can for 10 hours. How does that make you feel? Does that, is that something you want to do? No, I don't want to do it for 10 minutes, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because it is sort of like this like adjunct of adventure riding, but Everesting in and of itself isn't that much of an adventure. It's like, you know, I did a piece about Lachlan Morton, Morton when he broke the record or thought he broke the record and had to break the record again. And like, this is this guy who sort of like cut his uh, reputation as being you know, sort of an adventure rider in the world tour. And when you hear him describe everything, it's like, this doesn't sound that fun, you know? It's like, you're going up, you're going down, you're going up, you're going down. But it captured people's imagination, and I think that, like, what you described, that sort of, like, technical conversation, the mathematical conversation. Let's not forget there were some angry mountaineers uh, that I heard yeah. from yeah. who uh, took real exception to the suggestion that these cyclists have somehow climbed Everest. <laughs> Which was the sort of most literalist converse, uh, uh, most literalist controversy I've encountered as a reporter. I was certainly not suggesting that these guys had strapped on oxygen tanks and climbed to 29,000 plus feet. Um, but it just captured people's imagination and cycling lucked out with that. It also did luck out with the Zwift thing. I mean, early in this pandemic, you know, we, as we were really, really locked down and told to not leave our homes, basically. You know, there's an enormous amount of attention placed up on virtual sports and like, you know, where virtual or sports going to be a proper standard for sports uh, of all kinds. And cycling, because of the nature of what it is and that being able to replicate it in a fixed environment, locked into a trainer downstairs in your basement or garage or whatever you have your thing. Um, I know you, Fred, you have it over looking at the mountain big wall windows mm-hmm. like a Pel- Peloton ad, I'm sure. Um, but but cycling had this enormous sort of built-in advantage where it actually had, you know, not an equivalent virtual option, but certainly further down the road in terms of being equivalent to it than any other sport. There's no sport you can play in a, you know, AR, VR environment, which is close to what cycling does to replicate um, uh, in, in a virtual environment. And so that was a real benefit. And it sort of made things kind of exciting for the sport because there was a way to sort of translate it and make it, you know, not 100% of good, not 50% as good, maybe 42% as good, but sufficiently good enough to keep people interested. Yeah, uh, Jason, my Zwift setup is in my house's grotto. I don't know where you have yours. Mine's in my grotto. It overlooks a waterfall. 
mine is non-existent right now because I haven't, and, and this is no slag against Zwift, but I haven't done a Zwift ride since April, I think. I have been a dedicated outdoorsman. I mean, I'm fair weather though. Like, the first, like, 32 to 3 days, we've been going right down to the basement. <laughs> so, Jason, in following the professional return to sports, you know, I heard you the other day on Bill Simmons' podcast, and Simmons has said this a couple times, where he's like, you know, the better organized the sport, the more success it's going to have in, you know, warding off COVID in its return to competition. He talks about, you know, the NBA has this hundred and whatever page rule book and the bubble at Disney World and everyone's adhering to the rules. Meanwhile, you have MLB with this, you know, decades long battle between the MLBPA and the league and this commissioner who is not the best. And, you know, what do you have like this chaos involving the Marlins a few days in games canceled? Like, you know, we don't know if MLB is going to is going to continue. And in thinking about that, I was like applying that logic to cycling. Because I'm, like, I'm like, wait a second, like, that doesn't sound good. Cycling is literally the, like, least buttoned up sport that I know of from an organizational and governance perspective where you have this governing, bo- you know, this is not a single entity league. This is not even a franchise league. This is like all these little teams are their own entities. All these races are these own entities. You have the UCI that has some power sometimes, but not really that much power other times. You have this 15-page flimsy document that's sort of outlining what is going to go on. And yet, I mean, knock on wood, we're a few weeks into racing's return. And I've actually been pretty impressed with how um, the teams and the riders specifically have been handling it, which is that like, you know, the moment someone realizes they were like in contact or in tangential contact with someone who tests positive, like they're out of the races, they're quarantined, yeah. they're gone. You know, the yeah. riders are already hypochondriacs just due to the nature of the sport. So they're constantly yeah. like hand sanitizing and masks and touching elbows and stuff like that. I mean, what do you make of cycling, pro cycling's return during this era, knowing that like, you know, the, the sport is not exactly like a Swiss watch when it comes to. It's organization. And no, no, yeah, no. Listen, I, I, I think the only answer here is, is uh, early days. Too soon to tell. Okay, you know, hopeful indicators from this first couple of weeks of racing, but a lot, a lot, a lot of road to go. You know, still playing on grand tours, and those are a completely different kind of environment. We're talking about weeks upon weeks of you know confined spaces and traveling about and sharing buses and who knows what else in life. You know, we can be hopeful as possible, but there are some, you know, concerning little upticks that are happening in Europe. Um, I think it would be foolish to, for anyone to suggest that cycling has somehow figured this out. Um, and I, you know, can only cross my fingers. It was fun to watch some racing come back. I think that's great. You know, I hope that the riders feel that they're being protected from their, my, <laughs> protected from their teeth, which is a funny party. And so I hope that. Cyclists feel they're being protected by their teams, protected by their sport. Um, you know, cycling is not a sport that offers a tremendous amount of um, physical or emotional security. It is a risk-driven sport. It is a sport in which um, people still think it's a cool idea to have a downhill sprint finished, um, in which uh, commissioners uh, still have to be nudged when there's two feet of snow on a mountaintop finished to 
make the mountaintop finish or move the finish line up a little bit. And there's a lot of sort of like brainlessness that happens around the sport, as you indicated. And so I'm hopeful, you know, I'm hopeful. Uh, and I'm really hopeful, especially for, um, you know, not just the elite level people, but, you know, for student cyclists, for people who are cycling in school, um, for amateur, for Olympic level cyclists who are getting out there. I mean, you know, a lot of people are uh, chomping at the bit to get back out there. And so, you know, as we both know, the sport is far bigger, far broader than, you know, the, the, the World's War. I mean, and uh, we should also say the Women's World Tour has been successfully, you know, bringing itself back and there's been some interesting races there too. And, and, but I just think it's, it would be premature to, to, to say, put out the mission accomplished banner on the battleship, Brad. I don't think we're there yet. No, and I'm also looking at this fall in which, like, a mainstream sports uh, columnist like you, where it's like, you're going to have football games going on, NBA bubble basketball. Maybe. 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 And then all the while, all your favorite bike races are going to be, like, overlapping each other in the background. So you're going to have to make these tough decisions of, like, do I watch the Giants game or, like, the Eastern Conference semifinals? Or week two of the Welta. Or, yeah, or like the whole like thing is canceled in North America. And I'm yeah. like, let's have a little LBL, everybody. Yeah, let's that's do true. It. Like, okay, that could be that. This could be all cycling all the time. I mean, certainly, you know, there, there have been these little upticks that, you know, Europe's infection rates are quite a bit lower than anything in the United States. I mean, the worst outbreaks in Europe are still smaller than any American state. Um, so I just think that, um, you know, again, this is such a fluid situation. When these schedules were announced, I can't remember when they sort of put together that UCI schedule for something like May or something. I sort of laughed out loud when I saw it because it just looked like some crazy like destination wedding schedule where you're like, <laughs> who, thinks, who thinks this is going to happen? This looks insane. But they're trying. And I, you know, and there is something maybe about cycling culture that is just like, it's already bananas to begin with, so what's a little bit more bananas, you know? Um, you know, that's it's just weird. Yeah, the classics corresponding with the Giro and the Welta has thrown our coverage plans for a loop because we can't get over there to cover because of the North American travel plan. We have some people based in Europe, but it's like, you know, hey, do you go cover Flanders or week two of the Giro? You know, how do you balance this yeah. from a coverage perspective? Can I get some clarification on something? Because I, I have been corresponding with some cyclists in the states, and but but it's been a, a a little bit more than we did. But like, what is the status of if you're an American professional rider and you are trying to get over for competition overseas, and not just world tour, but you know, cross country and uh, other mountain biking events and things like what's happening? Are there exceptions, or are they just all on a political pinch right now? There are exceptions, um, but there's also hurdles. So. I spoke with some officials with the rally cycling team. They just raced this mm -hmm. uh, Tour de Savoie Mont Blanc, and they had to hire like a bunch of French riders because their American riders couldn't get over there because it's like American travel ban. They don't have residence in Europe. They're an American team, but they're jumping across the pond. And so, yeah, the, the few guys who did get to go over like either had residence established in Spain already. Or like Gavin Mannion, I think had maybe a dual passport or something like that. So, so there's, there's not like a professional exemption. There's not because like for example, we have the tennis is coming to New York. They're trying to put on the U.S. Tennis Open, and there is an exception that Homeland Security has made for you know, professional class athletics for you know big U.S. events are going to give an exemption to be able to enter the country. 
I, I we believe, should actually be encouraging yeah. people to come here, not the opposite. I believe uh, there may be a professional exemption if your employer is a European company. So it's like if you're uh, a Euro team or if you have – again, the big one is like residency. So a number of these World Tour guys, they have homes in Nice. They have sure, homes Girona, right. in Girona, whatever. So they can say, hey, I have residency over there. I, I'm going over there. Yeah, so the ones we've talked to yeah. said like – Getting over there was a harrowing experience. You know, I talked to Lauren Stevens. She's like, yeah, I had to quarantine for two weeks in a cottage in the UK. Yeah. Going yeah. Do you think that, you know, the, the, the early action that we've seen, you know, um, and I don't want to sound like I'm making light of any of it because it was unbelievably terrifying, but it's been pretty twitchy and there have been some terrible crashes, uh, most notably in the Poland and you know, do you think that there's anything to that? The fact that these races are happening in August, but they kind of feel jittery like early season races? Yeah, I think there's something to it in that um, people's form is all over the place based off of, like, whether they've been, you know, in Belgium. In the what country they've been in, yeah. yeah. Where you can train outside or whether they've been in, you know, Spain where there was a long lockdown. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is very reminiscent of the early season races. I just think that normally the early season races – like there's less at stake, you know, it's like the Vuelta al Argarve and, you know, there aren't as many world tour races with world tour points on the line. So it's a little bit more forgiving. And I think people are a little bit more to be like, ah, this is Ruta de Sud or like the, um, you know, the Tour of Valenciana. Like I want to win, but like, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm still kind of building form. Whereas all of a sudden, boom, like out of lockdown, World Tour races, World Tour points on the line, salary, you yeah. know, next year's contract, all these things. And so I, I would imagine there might be a bit more jitters. But I had that Tour of Poland thing. It was just like downhill sprint, 80 kilometers an hour. And it just looks like those barriers they were using were made out of like swizzle sticks and, and straws and paper mache. I mean, no, it was just terrifying, just terrifying. And, and there was also, a, I think, a, a lines, uh, some sort of official who was struck at the, yeah. in the collision. Well, I mean, the whole thing was just awful. Um, uh, you, you know, I think about that a lot with the sport that like, you know, we're seeing in this country where the conversations are happening about restarting sports and in, in the instances of the big leagues in this country, um, they all involve the player unions, uh, and the player unions are sitting there alongside the league because they decide their strategies for coming back and their protocols for testing and so on. Um, and that's not a privilege that professional riders enjoy. You know, they don't have the kind of labor union protection that, you know, big leagues in the United States have. And I hope that they realize, I mean, there's such a double-edged sword to this because they want to come back and they can compete. They want to compete because if they compete, they love it, but also that they can get a contract, they can, you know, continue their livelihood. But at the same time, they're never going to have more leverage. You know, they're never going to have the ability to come to the sport and say, like, listen, we want X amount of protections. We want longer contracts. We want better health care. We want certain things. And, you know, I know that there are teams that are very motivated to provide those kinds of things to uh professional cyclists, but too many do not. And we both know that it is not a sport of enormous wealth collection. <laughs> um, and I just feel like the reason they are coming back in almost every instance in the cross sport is not just second things that there's money. There's money on the table to be made for um, leagues, organizations, races, sponsors, uh, because the television money is there and it you know, the, the opportunity to, to realize the contracts is out there. And that's what's motivating these sports to all come back. And I hope the athletes 
realize this is an opportunity for them to make their voices heard. I think with cycling, it's a step further, which is almost survival. You know, I mean, with these big mainstream American sports, it's yeah, there's billions of dollars in TV revenue and advertising on the line. But, you know, I think you could make the argument that if Major League Baseball didn't come back, it would come back in 2021 or 2022, whenever. Maybe, you know, changed and weaker. Right. And I see what you're saying. I yeah. think, you know, yeah. from some of the, the business people we've spoken to in the sport, which is like, let's say the Tour de France doesn't happen this year, or like all yeah. these races right. are gone, then it's sort of you're or facing... Even, or even if it... Yeah. Even if it happens in a kind of like limited way that it, you know, is planned to happen, even if it goes off without a hitch, it's yeah. certainly not going to give you the kind of scale and impressions that Tour de France typically has. You could conceivably see a mass extinction of teams, um, world tour teams, races, you know, like the whole thing. It's like the engine goes dead and you might not be able to start the engine up just because cycling is, you know, it's not a, doesn't have the revenue and the strength and franchise values and stuff like that, like mainstream American sports. That's why, you know. Don't, don't, you, yeah. don't you think that's already going to happen in degrees? I mean, you know, not to be like, you know, wildly cynical here, but I, I think that the die is already cast and we are going to see a good deal of contraction in the sport no matter what happens in the next couple of months. Yeah, and I think especially like the pro continental level, the Division Two level, you'll see a lot of teams go away. You'll see races go away. I, what I what I am worried about is, um, aside from the professional side, is the mass participant side, which is in the states here. I mean, cycling's versions of the New York City Marathon and Boston Marathon, like, I mean, those things aren't coming back until we're like real set with some type of vaccine or cure or containment strategy or whatever, which is cycling as a mass sport. And, and that kind of scares me because, um, you know, events, mass participant events, those already operate pretty close to the margin. Sure. And, you no, know, who's going to do right. New York City Marathon in the age of COVID? Like, yeah. Right. And, and, and cycling, almost every one of them is a labor of love for the promoters and organizers. I mean, it's not, no one's going to bank on that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, I am concerned for the livelihoods of those folks and for those events too. And I think that they are sort of an integral part of the grassroots of the sport. But, but again, and none of this is to diminish those concerns, but it does, you know, we are through this existential moment of wondering like, well, what is cycling? What is the actual sport? Is the sport like closer to something like tennis where like it doesn't depend on like whether or not you're watching Wimbledon. It depends on whether or not you're picking up a can and walking down to your court. And you're having the experience yourself. Um, you know, cycling, I think, and I wish there were some sort of like catch all term for that, but like cycling is one of those rare sports where the vast majority of people who are in the viewing audience participate in it, at least in North America, it seems. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's such a bizarre construct, right? We're in a situation where the sport, the actual activity is having a boom. The manufacturers are reporting that they're having a nice uptick. The shops, I think the shops are challenged. There was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal by a guy named John Stahl a couple weeks ago about talking about some of the challenges of, you know, opening a bike shop. People think that bike shops are just like, you know, stuff is flying out the window and they're making more money at the liquor store or something like that. That's not completely true at all. Um, but I think that there are positive signs in that world. And then the bottom has completely fallen out of the elite competitive part of it and then we had no olympics all this stuff so it's just such a strange environment if you had sort of set up the you know construct here you probably wouldn't believe it i, mean, I would have thought that like at the time we have nothing you'd see more people on the road than it. can i ask you a question what would like i also think that one of the funnier things about like, watching like oh that's a 
New York City, uh, alarm bell, uh, doorbell, actually. Um, uh, when you, why I always find it with Melanson and Remo, the funnier part of it is like what a copyright it is at the beginning of the race because you know it's about a six and a half hour competition. How long do you think you could hang an MSR fresh? Um, right now, uh, <laughs> 10 minutes, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. maybe half an hour. Um, yeah. the thing that I've learned about, yeah, these big pro events, um, in talking to the riders, it's like, yeah, the pace may look pretty easy, but it's, re- it's not the pace. It's like the pack dynamic and how close everyone is riding to each other and navigating the road furniture and navigating like what it's like to be in a world tour bunch and just like fitness be damned like if you don't know that stuff if you haven't spent years like mastering the dynamics of that so you know it's kind of like me racing zwift which is like i get dropped in zwift immediately because i just don't know the like ebb and flow of the dynamics very well and i'm dumb and i waste energy and then i'm gone and i i think I that, mean, that you would know, be you don't want to waste yourself at like 800 watts for four minutes like <laughs> strangers on the internet yeah that's the thing about like zwift that i'd like to change maybe someone can explain to me that there is an option to do this but can can i join a zwift race with like a leisurely rollout like that, that i would like that like you know just like 10k we're just neutralized and looking at each other and talking about what we did last night i mean like that's what i want like i don't need this like crazy like all out like whole shot for 10 minutes it's just the worst you don't want the countdown to the zwift race being like the countdown to your suffering to like you reaching maximum watts per kilo right before the thing starts I don't know. I mean, I haven't done any kind of com- competitive riding for a really, really long time, but people I know who do it and said before the pandemic that Zwift was making people so fit and just your local, like, weekend warrior racing that, like, it actually was starting to get annoying. That, like, the whole, like, even, like, a place like New York City where there's a pretty active racing scene, you know, you can race in the winter, you know, coming out of the winter, they start racing in the end of February, beginning of March, and, like, those first bunch of races were always a little bit, like, you know, rolling fully, right? And, uh, but not anymore, because the people are just fine. Well, Jason, I really appreciate you carving out some time today to come to the podcast. Um, last thing before I go, I mean, what's the storyline you're following heading into the, uh, during the Tour de France? What is the big story you think, uh, the Tour this year? I mean, the most obvious one, and probably the, is whether or not they're going to actually, Pull it off. I mean, you know, this is, they're they're doing the Tour de France. They're doing the actual race that they intended to do in July. They're just starting on August 29th, and they are you know going everywhere they were intended to go. And what version of it? And how? If they get limited, if they have teams fall out, if they have athletes fall out, if they have you know personnel fall out for coronavirus or other reasons. I mean, you always have people fall out of Grand Tours for any number of reasons, but it's just, it's such a, you know, and you know, and anyone who's been around a Tour de France knows that it is like, the circus comes to town, meets the Super Bowl, meets Metallica, meets like a sporting event, meets Comic Con, and it's, you know, astonishing the fact that they can pull this off in ordinary conditions. Now you add a, a pandemic, but uh, you know it's obviously a point of national pride for you know France and for the people who put it on, and it's extremely prestigious and important to athletes. And there's a lot of motivation to make that happen and get that money. And uh, I think that will be the number one thing in terms of the actual like athletes. Uh, you know, um, uh, it would be interesting to see a non-Enios rider uh, win this year. Um, you know, I think Bernal will be very hard to beat. He's obviously shown that he has the capability to do it. He's done it. Um, he will have uh, competitive 
competitors on his own team, and, and yes, already seems like it's quite a spicy operation. It'll be interesting to see if Broom will be on the roster, but if he is, that means three tour winners on the same team. Has that happened? Three actual uh, tour winners starting for the same team? That's been a couple of one too. Yeah, that, uh, is somebody you know, somebody on cyclingreference.com can uh, get, get informed. I would love to know that, but that'll be interesting, uh, you know. And and and, uh, and her, her buddy Wout, you know, who got bounced last year in a terrible accident, has really come up flying out of the gate here. I'd love to see what he can do. He's not a grand tour contender, but he is somebody who can do incredible things in a bike race and make a stage race really exciting. I just root for good races and good race days and exciting things to happen. I think that the Grand Tours have kind of fallen behind the one-day races to me in the last bunch of years because they have become just show-off forces for the wealthier teams and, and, and they've been a little bit too data-driven and self-dominated. But um, I hope that changes. Maybe this sort of like reckless abandonment of a pandemic era is exactly what the sport needs in terms to make it uh, competitive. Certainly Milan San Remo was freaking awesome. I mean, I can't argue with that result. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that the new calendar date and the whole COVID shutdown and just taking the season that everyone has like dialed in with skill and science to being, you know, knowing exactly where they're going to peak for the race and being exactly on target, whatever, like crumbling that up, throwing it out the window is just going to lead to a Tour de France where, yeah, not everyone is on tip tip top form and not the most, you know, the richest teams can't just do what they do. And we might have some deviation from the script, but we're going to find out because it's Cross your fingers. Uh, coming up. It's all happening. It's all happening. It's all happening. Jason, all happening. thank you so much for coming on the Velo News Podcast again. I appreciate it. We can read your columns at uh, WSDA.com. And my guess is you will be writing about cycling at some point in the next few months, correct? Yes. Yes. I, we, uh, we, we, we care a good deal about cycling at the Wall Street Journal. We're fortunate to have uh, a really great reporter in Josh Robinson, who is in Europe, who is going to be able to be at a lot of this stuff. My boss is a super cycling nut. So, uh, yeah, we're, we run a little competitor to you, Fred. You know, if you start doing financial news, it's really going to start. It's going to be on. Oh, yeah. That's, you're, you're safe on that end. All right, Jason. <laughs> Cover the bond market, Fred. Do bond market. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the pod, Jason. This past weekend, we all watched on the edge of our seat as Milano San Remo concluded at its strange time in August. Wout van Aert escaped, uh, out sprinted Julian Alaphilippe for the win, uh, finishing just a couple seconds behind Wout van Aert in the main group. We had an American in the bunch, Matteo Jorgensen, uh, making his debut in World Tour Racing, finished 17th place overall. It's the best American finish in a really long time. Matteo rides for the Movie Star team, and Matteo is our guest on the Velo News podcast this week. Matteo, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Hey, Fred. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into some of the backstory and the lead up to this race, I mean, this is your first time racing this distance. It's a big world tour race. Take us through those final 25 to 30 kilometers over the Cipressa and the Poggio. What do you remember from that part of the race? Oh, I remember uh, mostly stress, huh? I think the final really started on the top of the Nava climb, which is new, the part of the, the new route they had to come up with. And uh, I think we honestly started the major positioning battle about 90k out uh, up that climb. And everyone knew that basically you get to the top of that climb and 
it's a descent right to the Chipressa. Um, and I mean, the Chipressa is the, is the first climb that selects it and starts kind of the, the real final for the Poggio. And so, I mean, that whole climb, it was pretty nervous. And then over the top, I mean, it was honestly just a full sprint into the descent, which was crazy. Uh, we were just kind of like going as fast as we possibly could. And then everyone on the brakes on the first switchback and then it all lined out. And I, Thankfully, I was in the first 20 wheels on that long descent, and um, and then yeah, we came down. Uh, had a few k on the coastal road before the Chipressa, and I was again super super nervous. I mean, yeah, craziest uh, positioning battle I've experienced yet, and uh, I again just fought super hard to be in front on the Chipressa, and yeah, I made it. I think I entered the Chipressa probably top 30, um, and the selection was made, and then. We actually descended off the Chipressa and it was, it was a pretty small group at the bottom. Like I would say, yeah, 20, 30 guys. And, um, and I kind of relaxed a bit. I like, I just needed a little bit of, uh, like a mental break. And I kind of like just sat at the back of the group for a little bit because it really wasn't a big group at all. And, um, and it wasn't that long before the Poggio, but I, man, I should have done that because we, we got caught by a group of about, probably 40 with all the teammates of the leaders and we just got swarmed before the before the Poggio like 1k to go this group caught us and like honestly just like all these guys suddenly came to the field and and found their leader and suddenly I was like 45th and <laughs> 50th or more and I was at the back of this group and entering the Poggio and um yeah I looked around and I saw I saw Gilbert was back there too he's like the only major favorite I could find that was with me and so I kind of just jumped on his wheel and, uh, we made the huge effort of like, you know, just like snaking through all these guys that were blowing up and, and, uh, like, you know, there was guys literally coasting after a switchback because they blew up or they were cramping or, and, uh, yeah, we made it up and made it up to the leaders just before the top. I mean, we had to do like a full spread to make it to the, to the back of like that front group over the top and then. I think I was honestly dead last uh, of the group coming over the top of the Poggio on that left hand turn before the descent. And then, I mean, once once you make it on the group there, you know you're going to make it to the finish. So it was a pretty, uh, quite a bit, of, it was a big release. <laughs> I was pretty, pretty glad to made it. You know, something that you touched on there that I think doesn't get enough description or appreciation to American cycling fans is this positioning battle at these tense moments in the race. How would you describe what it looks and feels like to be in a big tight peloton when a position battle is going on for a marquee climb or a marquee sector of road? Like, what are you seeing? What's what's the pressure like? And just set the scene. Yeah. Uh, I mean the stress is just super high. There's essentially what ends up happening. I mean, it's a different experience for me because I don't, I, I didn't have teammates there in the final. I wasn't like the leader of my team. It's not like I, I was going to have guys ride for me, but most of these leaders have two or three guys in the final of these races where they, they trust and, and they follow their wheel and it takes a lot of the stress off. But for me and, you know, for some of these other guys on, uh, that, that didn't have teammates at the, at those moments. It's, it's like, I mean, it's just craziness. It's like, there's guys at the front riding super hard because they, you know, there's, there's two teammates. At, let's say there's Jumbo on the front and they're riding super, super hard to keep Wout uh, up there. So they're, I mean, 
the, the pace is insanely high. And then so farther back, you have teams like on the left and the right, like trying to trying to come over the top of them. So it's kind of just constantly accelerating up to the bottom of the Poggio or or whatever sector in any of these classics. And so back in the group, you, you can't see anything. I mean, you're you're in the, you're in this group and it's like on San Remo is on the coastal road. So you're twisting left, right through a town here. And, and there's, you know some you know huge pothole on the left and some guys are hitting it breaking super hard and you're kind of doing all these micro sprints um that just take it out of you i mean you're some guy breaks on the right because it all compresses on the inside of a right turn and, and you have to you know swing over to the left and you know, there's just some guy chopping someone else and it's like all of these really hard breaking really hard sprinting really hard breaking really hard sprinting and that's why everyone talks about having a, a teammate because it's like when you have a guy that can that can navigate you through it, you don't have to think about it, and he can sit in the wind. Because on the outsides, you can you can always move up on the outsides. It's just the speed is so high that you'd have to do such a huge effort. You'd be toast for the for the actual moment that matters. So uh, you end up you end up uh, if you don't have a teammate, just kind of <laughs> in this washing machine in the middle, and it's yeah, it's super stressful. So you survived 300 kilometers of this washing machine of constant sprints. And breaking and sprints and breaking and had enough to make it over the final climb and finish with the group. I mean, what is this ride and this result telling you about your form right now, but also your ability to navigate world tour racing? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it's 17th place. It's not like I, I won the race, but I think I can take confidence in that. Uh, yeah, I was in the front group and, and I mean, Going into this race, I had zero expectation. I really, honestly, just wanted to finish the race. I had done, I had started two other World Tour races this year, Omelette at Newsblood and Strata Bianchi, and neither of them I finished. And, uh, yeah, I just really wanted to finish a, a World Tour race. And, uh, and so it's, yeah, it's a huge, it's a, it's a huge surprise to me. And, and I think, uh, a lot of, you know, some of the people on the team that, that, that signed me, you know, they, they kind of expected this, but for me, it was, uh, it was something new and it was a confidence that I, the confidence that I take from it is all new. And, um, and I think just knowing kind of that these guys aren't, they're on, they're not on a whole different level that's unachievable is, is, is actually pretty, uh, it's a pretty big thing mentally to know that. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's huge for me. Now, Mateo, a year or so ago, you and I connected for a story about your unique pathway to the world tour. So you are riding for a Spanish team. You're the first American since Andy Hampston to ride for this team. But the pathway that you chose to get to this team is a bit unorthodox in that you went and raced for French teams in Europe rather than racing for U.S. teams and jumping across the pond. You know, you committed yourself to living in France and racing in those events over there, networking with a community over there to to get into the world tour. Just from a pure performance and racing standpoint, when you look at, you know, you look at this result from this weekend and being able to navigate that peloton in that chaotic situation, how did those experiences in French racing and the French racing scene contribute to your ability to do that? I mean, if you had just been like, racing Redlands or racing the U.S. domestic scene, what would have been missing when you all of a sudden get thrown into a race like Milano San Remo? Mm, that's like a really good question. Uh, I think actually to make it really simple, I think it honestly comes down to road size. Uh, I think a lot of the, the dynamics of European racing come down to the fact that you have 
much smaller roads and it's a much, I mean, usually have more riders as well. So it, it kind of compounds on itself, but essentially there's just less road to work with. And, uh, I mean, at least I, I, I never raced red ones. I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't do a lot of these American races, this, these classics that a lot of these American guys did. I did Colorado classic. That was pretty much the only pro American race I did. And I think the differences is like, at least I call it a classic. It's like, it's just so purely physical and that there's, you, you remove any element of positioning or, or, uh, or, I mean, just all, all these things we just talked about, like all this stress that, that was in San Remo, you kind of remove all that. And, and it's kind of just like, when I, if I want to get to the front, I can just kind of ride to the front or, I mean, the, the road's plenty wide for this and, and, uh, and and you hit a climb and it's kind of just like pretty controlled. It's 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 just physical, you know. What I mean, if you can do the power, you'll you'll win the race up the up the climb, or or you know you'll win the sprint. But I think what what being in France taught me is like, I mean, a lot of those French races are just as chaotic as San Remo. Same with the U23 races I did last year, like like Avenir. I mean, it's it's the same. You're on the same roads and and it's. Guys want it just as bad, even even if the power isn't isn't as high or the age isn't there. I mean, guys want it just as bad. So you have just as fierce of uh, positioning battles in in these you know Italian or French races or, or whatever at the slightly lower level here in Europe. So I think it's pretty invaluable the experience. I I don't think there's any way I could have finished uh, San Remo if I if I had come straight from the U.S. You know, if I was a a neo pro and I hadn't hadn't had experience uh, in Europe. What's the biggest difference then? I mean, between, you know, a U23 race, Avenir, French race, or Italian U23 race to something like World Tour Milano San Remo. Is it just the power? I mean, what, where do you see the biggest differences? Yeah. I mean, it's the distance. Uh, it's the time, you know, time in the saddle and time at, uh, at certain powers. I mean, it's a, it's mainly a physical difference, to be honest. It's not like, I would actually say, from the majority of pro races that I've done so far, they've been much calmer than the 23 races I had, I've had experience with. So I think mostly it's just a physical difference. I mean, you just have to be able to do higher power for a longer amount of time. And, uh, if you can't do that, then, you know, you just won't, uh, you won't be there. How's everything going on the Spanish team? I mean, again, you know, you're the first American since Andy Hampson to be on this team. You know, we don't often hear of Americans going to Spanish teams. Often it's, you know, going to another American team or, um, you know, Larry Warbass on a French team. But like what ha what skills have you had to cultivate and how have you found a way to fit in on this Spanish team? Yeah, it's going super well so far. Uh, I mean, this year has been super strange. Like, at this point, if it was a normal year at this point, I think I would already have, uh, I mean, I would definitely have a, a, you know, much, I just have more experiences with the team and with the guys. But at this point, I mean, before, before lockdown happened, I'd only done a tour of Columbia and then, you know, the, the opening weekend of the classic. So, and one, and one training camp and one camp without bikes. So it's like I spent maybe in total three weeks with, with the team and the staff and it, it just wasn't enough time to really get a feel or, or get a handle even on the language. And for me, I think it's like super important to try to learn the language. I need to, I need to sit around guys speaking Spanish and, uh, you know, for periods of time. And so I kind of, I, I miss that, uh, during, during the, you know, during the lockdown and, and while racing was gone while I was in the U S I, 
I tried to keep up on Spanish just by doing, you know, Duolingo on my phone and, and listening to Spanish podcasts, but it's just not the same. My level definitely uh, went down. And so th this time, actually, I've been in Italy. I've been here at this hotel for a few weeks uh, with with the whole the whole team that's doing all these Italian races, and it's been really good. I mean, just listening to Spanish and talking with this one year and the masseuse in Spanish and, you know, hearing Spanish on the radio. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty nice. I'm, I'm just trying to take it all in and, and, um, and just experience it right now. And why have you chosen this non-traditional route? I mean, what is it about, you know, going the French route, Spanish team, learning different languages, moving to Europe full time, as opposed to a bit of a more traditional route of racing, you know, in Europe and the United States, maybe choosing an English speaking team um, for development. Why have you chosen this route and where do you feel like there are advantages and also disadvantages? Yeah, I definitely made a pretty clear decision when I was like last year junior uh, that I was basically last year junior and I was racing in Europe and I mean, I was racing half the time in Europe, half the time in the U.S. So I, I do I do like you know, a month or two with the national team in Europe in the spring and then go back to the U.S. and race with hot tubes in the U.S. And I would just like I would just be in Europe and realize just how much different the races are. And I would get done with a race and be like, I just gained as much experience in that race as I have in the last five years in the U.S. racing and and. I kind of realized that if I wanted to make it in the sport, I, I needed to come to Europe and, and learn here, uh, what bike racing is about. And, uh, and yeah, I, I tried really hard my last year junior to find a team in Europe and nothing came together. And thankfully, uh, yeah, I, I, Danny Van Howe gave me a chance with Jelly Belly and, um, and he allowed me the freedom of racing with the national team that spring and, and, um, yeah, it was pretty invaluable experience that spring to to do. I did some of the U23 classics even, and I did uh, this race run off Air Tour and Ronda Lizard and and kind of yeah. I mean, it just all all it did was cement me that I needed to be in Europe. And uh, yeah, and then the next year, I, at that year, I kind of had some good rides. And then the next year, I, I was in touch with the French team, and I just decided I'll just I'll just go for it. And if you kind of think what I re what I what I knew in the back of my head was I'll just go to Europe and. I'll know pretty quickly if, you know, if, if I can make it in Europe and if I can't, then I probably can't make it in cycling in general. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, that's just kind of how it is. This sport's pretty European. So I'd rather just know right off the bat than, uh, than spend, you know, a lot of years in the U.S. just fighting for it. So. And what advice would you have for young Americans coming up who have aspirations of racing in the world tour, of wanting to get to your level? I mean, what would you what would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, I would definitely say you know if you're if you're a junior, I would say try to get on the national team because it's it's really the only opportunity you have as a junior to to get experience in Europe and. Um, and, you know, if you're, I think even if, even if not just work on training and, and, you know, watch a lot of bike racing. I think that's what I've learned in the last, you know, a lot of years is a couple of years is that every time I watch bike racing, I'm learning something as well. And you kind of, uh, you know, you can just like other sports. I mean, they all, they all watch footage and, and, uh, I think we can do it in cycling too and kind of, you know, learn from, learn from, uh, other races that aren't going on and that's something that I've really enjoyed and um, and yeah 
get over here. I mean, that's that's the big thing. <laughs> well, Mateo, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast this week. Mateo Jorgensen, 21 years old, uh, American, racing for a movie star, uh, just popped a great result at Milan San Remo. And you have Gran Piemonte, Il Lombardia, you know, a bunch of Italian races coming up. Do you know what your um, later in the fall is going to look like? You're going to be doing Belgian Classics or uh, a Grand Tour, perhaps? Should be on for the classics. That's the plan for now. Uh, yeah, no grand tours at the moment. A little, little bit too young, I think. <laughs> well, we're going to keep our eyes on you, Mateo. Uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Sweet. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>